Well, good morning, guys. Uh, we have the abbreviated worship. We're going to have some communion before we do that. Let's jump into the Word. If you wouldn't mind, flip back over to Acts chapter 15 one last time. If you recall, the first time two or three weeks ago we looked at Acts chapter 15, we just covered the doctrine portion of it, right? Uh, the simple, true, profound, true, perhaps most important true of all the truths of the Scripture, and that is that a person is saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest anybody should boast. That nobody does anything to make God love them more. Nobody does anything to gain more credit with God. Nobody does anything that makes God uh, give them more favor. But that a person gets saved, regenerated, becomes a new creation in Christ by simply trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. And we can never leave that true behind or uh, resent it as we go upon a journey to be uh, made like into the image of his son, that it always comes by grace through faith. Then last week we looked at how they dealt with that truth and how you have what's called uh, the Jerusalem Council. And so what happens is some guys show up in Antioch from Judea, most likely from Jerusalem, and essentially begin to trouble people, Gentiles, who are getting saved. They're receiving Jesus, and they come along and they say, hey, that's nice that you've received Jesus, but you actually need to be circumcised too to be saved. And later on, later on that'll develop into circumcision plus um, keeping the Sabbath plus keeping the feasts plus dietary laws. And they say, unless you do these things, you can't actually be saved. And that started like day one uh, after Jesus went, or, you know, went into heaven, that heresy, and it has continued to this very day in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, but it's, it's so important that we stick to it. Anyway, so they come, they start sharing that. And Paul and Barnabas, they have a dissension, they have a disagreement, and they debate it. Remember, it means to question it. We talked about what it is, how, what a healthy debate is. It's not rage, it's not emotional, it's not fury, that it's dialogue. It literally means to question. Why do you say that? How did you come to that? Can you please show me that? And we talked a lot about our, how our society is very much right now, we're, we're professional offendees. You, you say something I don't like, and I'm unable to deal with that. Um, I'm unable to dialogue with you. I have to cut you out of my life for closure's sake, or I have to just reject you, or I try to outshout you, or something like this. And we can see, uh, without trying to be melodramatic, realistically, the, the, the fabric of society is deteriorating around us. That You literally cannot talk to people and have a disagreement and without it devolving into something radical and, and just base. And it's, it's, it's pretty, it can be pretty discouraging, I think. So that was last week and, and looking at how we can deal with those scriptural issues that we don't agree with. Uh, amazingly enough, in this chapter, there is a second disagreement. So you have, you have this radical doctrinal disagreement that is three quarters of the chapter. And then you have this last quarter of the chapter that is a disagreement with Paul and Barnabas. And there's a lot of, uh, I'm not trying to compare myself or anything like that, but perhaps you've experienced this too. There's a lot of really weird teachings about what we'll cover today. And a lot of the times those weird teachings, they end up with Barnabas is kind of this naughty loser that leads, leaves the scene, and Paul's the hero, and that's why the book of Acts follows him for the rest of Acts. 
And there's a big problem with that kind of a teaching because, one, it's a lot of inference, meaning it's putting things into the Bible that the Bible doesn't say. It's a lot of, of, of assumption, and it kind of rejects other places in the Scripture that talk about Paul, talk about Barnabas, uh, Barnabas and their relationship with one another. So my hope for today is to sit down and really to just talk about dealing with insurmountable disagreements. Because that's something we all have to do, right? There are no two, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. I said it last service, I'll recant it. I don't think there are any two people on the planet that agree on every single thing. I don't think those people exist. And you've probably experienced that too. Probably in this church, you're listening to me or to another Bible teacher or reading a book and you go, oh, I like that, I like that. I don't know about that. I don't know if that's the case, you know, and, or whatever. And so we have, a, we have a disagreement about something. And the cool thing about this account that we're going to read today is that there are two people that love Jesus, love the church, love each other, and cannot go the same way anymore. And they do it with Jesus' style. And so it's very apropos for, for us in the climate that we live in to be able to look into the scripture and see two people that love Jesus with their whole heart, two people that want the best for the church of Jesus Christ in their time, and they just can't keep walking together in, in, in one setting. And how we can adopt some of the things and look into some of the things that they did and said, and we can hopefully learn to be able to walk with one another in our insurmountable disagreements. Agree, disagreements we just, you just say, I just can't go there. I just can't walk in that with you and still be gracious and kind and not divisive, not angry, not uh, at, um, anxious because we don't agree on everything, but to be at peace in, in who God is, what he's doing, and how we can walk with our brethren, even though we can't go there, uh, go certain places with them. So let's jump into it. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. It says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed. And having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And there's some language in there in the end that seems uh, not confusing, but kind of lean a certain direction, and we'll talk about that. But what you have here is you have Barnabas and Paul, right? You have Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement. Barnabas' real name is Joseph, right? We know that from Acts chapter 4. But the, 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 uh, the apostles, the big 12, right, they nickname him Barnabas, son of encouragement, the, a descendant of encouragement. Would that, that's a pretty, I mean, wouldn't that, we talk about that when we talk about Barnabas. If, if you're going to have a nickname, I, I'm not sure it would get better than that. People see you come and go, you know who that person is? That person is a descendant of encouragement. That's who that person is. Rather than, here comes the complainer. Oh, yeah, this person. Here's come somebody who gives me a ration every time I see them. All this, right, to, 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 to the people just glance at you and go, oh, this person encourages me every single time they roll up. That's who Barnabas is, right? 
And then you have Paul. Paul, who is the Apostle Paul, he's the, he's the super apostle, right? I mean, he's the guy. He wrote all the letters. He's the, he's the doctrine. He broke down geniusly through the Holy Spirit exactly how salvation worked, how condemnation worked, how the, the redemption of Christ worked, how God's plan in Israel with the church and how that's going to work. And then how the God, I mean, this is just a brainiac. I mean, in, in, in the scriptural commentary and in extra-biblical commentary about Paul's life, meaning commentary from others uh, about who he is, Paul is a genius and a brainiac. And so you have these two guys, two guys that have a history together, years of history together. And they come to this place in the gospel over another person, John Mark. Who's John Mark? Remember, John Mark is Mary. And remember way back when Peter goes to prison? And the church gets together in Jerusalem in a house and uh, to pray together for Peter's release. And you have uh, you know, the, the, the servant that answers the door and closes it in Peter's face and you know, doesn't really open it all the way, however it goes. That's his mom. She probably also owned uh, the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed on the, on the night that he was betrayed. So that's Mark. He's a son with, uh, of money. Uh, he's a, a privilege in our society, you might call it. Um, and he went with them on their first missionary journey. He goes with Paul and Barnabas, but for some reason, he leaves when they get to Pamphylia. Here's the thing, and this is something that I want to be careful about as we study this, and something to be careful about just in life. We have no idea why he left. Why is that important? Because we can't judge it, which is great. Isn't it awesome to know that we can just say that Mark left and we don't know why and we don't care. And if God wanted you to know why, he would have told you, but he didn't. So all we have here is that Mark left. And it leaves us so at peace and free, doesn't it? We just go, I left. He could have missed his mommy. He could have missed his comfortable bed at his mommy's big house. He could have not liked the fact that Gentiles were getting saved. He could have not liked the fact that he had to keep carrying their luggage. I mean, who knows why he didn't want to go anymore, but he didn't. All we know is that in two places in the scripture, Paul talks about it in a negative, including this place where he says, it's not a good idea for us to take Mark because he ditched us in the middle of the journey. Okay, so we don't need to be hard on Mark. We don't need to measure Mark. Think of all the you know, fellowships or whatever you've ever been to, and you're like, I'm out. I don't want to deal with this anymore. That's what he did. And so we have Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We have Paul, kind of the hardcore brainiac. I'm not saying he wasn't gracious. We'll look more at him. And we have John Mark. And so basically, Paul and Barnabas, two different people with different histories, with different backgrounds, with different temperaments, with different spiritual giftings, with different ideas, come to a place where they say, Barnabas saying, we need to take this guy with us. And Paul saying, I will not travel with him. I'm not going to do it. And they split, they, they, they split ways. And so for a lot of us, there, there are times and there's things that happen at church or in relationships or different things like this. And we just go, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't walk with you through this. I cannot in good conscience allow this to happen. And there's a million different issues that it could be. I mean, and, and in this case, this is nothing necessarily doctrinal. This is two people's different opinions of how things can go. 
You might go to the church and to a church and just say, you know, the, this the music's too loud. It's too lively. I, I'm a, com- a contemplative person. I like to have my hands in my pockets and just think. I just imagine the Lord and I I consider Him and I meditate on Him and I thank Him under my breath and that's what I do. Or you might go to a church and say, this music's too slow. It's just too sad. I need it to, I need to be peppy. I need to be pepped up and I need to I need to be exciting and to you know rev. Those are perfectly valid points, aren't they? One is not more scriptural than the other. Well, you can go to a church and you can say, hey, you know, I just don't like that teaching. It's too slow for me. I don't like that teaching. It's too fast for me. I don't like that, too, that teaching. It's too academic. I don't like that teaching. It's not academic enough. I just can't walk with this truth. I don't enjoy this. And so I'm not going to, I don't hate this person, but we're going to part ways. And I'm going to go somewhere where I can fit in in that way. You know, another example for me is, you know, I would never personally feel comfortable, like, running in front of the church and, like, waving a flag. I personally wouldn't feel comfortable with that. It's probably on me, to be honest. There's probably some weird, deep-rooted pride in my heart. But if you came to our church and you ran up here and started waving a flag, it wouldn't be sin. It'd just be incredibly distracting. Why? Because nobody else is waving flags. And so it would just simply draw everyone's attention to the one person doing that. It doesn't make them wrong in what their belief is. It just makes it inappropriate for where we are. But if you went to a church where everybody grabbed a flag and waved it, that would not be inappropriate, would it? I would be standing there with my hands in my pockets going, okay, God bless you guys, wave away. I'll be right here just contemplating the Lord, worshiping the Lord in my heart. I might say, I don't feel comfortable with this. I, uh, you know, I'm not going to measure these people. I can't go there without it being a fleshly action in my life. So I'm going to go to a place where I can put my hands in my pocket. I've heard many good pastors that I love and respect say something to the effect of like, hey, let's make sure we all lift our hands up. Why? Because they like to lift their hands up. It makes them feel closer to God. There's a scriptural example for it. So if they like it and it feels good to them, then clearly we should all do it, right? No, not right. It's a suggestion that comes from a good heart, but it's not a good suggestion. I don't have to hate them. I don't have to judge them. I don't have to measure with them. I can just say, I can't walk with you through that. I feel like I can't clap. Some of you can. I can't. It's one of two things. It's singing or it's clapping. Because if I try to do both, it's just like, Lord, I lift your name on high. I can't do it. I'm as wide as they come. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so there's, there's certain things. In, you know, in, in this case, Paul has a, has a thought and Barnabas has a thought. And they're very good thoughts. And we're going to talk about those. They're very important thoughts that they both have. And they just can't walk together in that ministry anymore because of those thoughts. And guess what, guys? It's okay. It's okay to have insurmountable differences as long as we part in peace and in love and in a lack of judgment, meaning not we have bad judgment, but in a lack of condemnation for the other, right? I'm a firm believer in denominations because different people enjoy different things. Can you imagine if every single believer from every single background with every single natural inclination and appreciation for certain things was in one building, it would be chaos because you'd have people that were like rolling you know, with flags everywhere. And God bless those people. I wish I had that kind of enthusiasm. I will jump out of my chair if I'm watching hockey and like, yay, a black puck went in a net. Yay. 
But I don't. Have, but that's in my own house, on my own couch, by myself, and I make sure the kids aren't there. But you know, it's like, but, but for me to like jump around in the church, I would feel really weird. So you have these, you know, you have these differences, and and they're not doctrinal in a sense. I mean, there are different ideas about the scripture. They're not moral. They're not hurting anyone, and you can have those differences, and it's perfectly fine. It's just what matters is how we treat people that we have differences with. And that's kind of where we get today, and it's just it's a fantastic thing. So number one about working through differences with each other is knowing who you're working with. This is really important. Uh, human nature, from what I've observed, you might be different, is to always assume the worst. Have you ever, have you ever done that? Uh, I remember for a while, um, I would always put our razor in the shower because I used to shave in the shower. It's actually really nice that way. It's clean, you know, whatever. I would just, and I got to the point where I would just kind of touch up the, my sideburns when I got to the mirror, but the rest is... And so I would put my razor... This is a total TMI story. I would put my razor in, the, in a certain way in the little shower thing. You guys have those? kind of hangs off the, like the shower thing, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so I would set mine in there a certain way. Well, my wife would always use the same razor for her legs, which for a while was disappointing because you can shave a lot of times... You can shave a lot of times your face with one razor, and you're good for like a month. Uh, one leg, and it's like, ah, the next time you use it. But I digress. So I would put my, my razor a certain way, and then I would get into the shower the next time, and my razor would be in a different place. And because I'm a, sin for, a sinner and just a disgusting person, I'd be like, why does she do this to me? Why does she intentionally move my razor? And I know she's used it now, and it's going to hurt so bad when I use it again. We're not destitute. Buy another razor, woman. Like, what's happening here, right? I'm not saying that's the way you should think. I'm saying it's how I did think. And miraculously, I'm still married. But I had this, you know, there's my razor, and there it is. That's why I was like, you know what? Let's take it. Actually, now there's like three razors in our shower, so like, Whatever. How much am I paying for rate? Those are not cheap. Like, come on. But, <laughs> but, so, but the, the point was is that for some reason, in my own sinful nature, I looked at this stupid thing like a razor, and it was like, you're trying to get me. You don't care about me. You just use my razor and then make it dull and then put it wherever you want. What is happening now? What does terrible disrespect is this, right? It's totally ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. And it wasn't, you know, walking with my wife and being married for years, and I just realized, probably embarrassingly long time because of my own sin, she's not against me. There's no plot that includes razors or soap or toothpaste or which way the teepee goes or anything else. She has no plot. She's not against me. She's for me. She loves me. I mean, she'd have to be. We've been married for 18 years, right? But in my mind, sometimes I would think, like, she's doing this on purpose. <laughs> so a big part of having a disagreement, like where the razor goes or something like that, having an insurmountable disagreement with somebody and in, in how we can relate and, and be, have the disagreement and be okay with it is knowing who you're talking to and, and assuming the best about that person until you're proved otherwise. In other words, if I come to my wife and I jump out of the shower and I'm standing there in my towel and I'm like, oh, what is this razor, right? And I come like, why would you do this? It is dull. Do you see the rash on my face? And I can't believe, and it wasn't even standing up anymore. It was laying sideways where it rusts. And I, oh, right, if I do that, 
And I'm making this assumption, you're doing this, you don't care about me, and you're doing this on, on purpose. I'm going to act and think and respond completely different than if I take a look at the, the, the razor there and I go, I'll bet she doesn't know that this annoys me. I bet I could just ask her to buy one of those Lady Venus razors and she'd be just fine. <laughs> and then we could all have our personal razors and nobody's face would get bumpy and it would be great. All right? It's going to be two completely different conversations, isn't it? And it's going to be two completely different belief systems about the person you're talking to, isn't it? See, who we think each other are and the, and the grace that we afford each other and, and really, for lack of a better term, the reputation that we afford one another through time is really important. So here you have Paul and Barnabas. And let's talk about to these two different people, how they have to approach it and, and, and look at one another. And, and, and it'll even help us to understand the disagreement. In this case, we know Barnabas' real name from Acts chapter 4. We won't turn there for time's sake. Excuse me. In Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, the first time he's mentioned, his name is, real name is Joseph. He's from Cyprus, and he sells a field to donate the money to the church because you have that huge, you know, 3,000 people get saved in one day. That's a logistical nightmare. It's a miraculous glory, but a logistical nightmare. How are you going to disciple these people? How are you going to educate them about the, you know, just where they could go to church, just, just literally the logistics of it. Then they don't want to leave Jerusalem, and they all stay, right? Because they're all there for Passover. And they're like, we got saved. We received Jesus. Like, we're all, we're all in on this. And they have to meet, and they have to eat. They've left their jobs. They're just now homeless in Jerusalem, you know? And so people start selling stuff like crazy to provide for all these people to get saved. The first time we see Barnabas is selling his land so that he can make sure that people who have just gotten saved will have money to be able to eat and sleep somewhere in Jerusalem and be part of this new movement of God. That seems like a pretty solid heart, right? I mean, that, that, seems, that seems like a guy that's probably not out to get anybody or trouble Paul or something like that. The next time you see Barnabas is when Paul tries to come to Jerusalem. He brings, he brings Paul gets saved, and Barnabas brings him to Jerusalem, and all the people in Jerusalem, the believers, are like, whoa, no, no, no. This guy used to kill us and torture us. This is, this is Saul we're talking about here. We're not letting this guy into the church. And it's Barnabas who's like, no, bro, he's changed. He got saved. He's one of us now. Except this guy. And it's on Barnabas' word that the church says, you're in. Cool. We'll listen to you now. So it's Barnabas that vouched for and in a sense kicked off Paul's public ministry. We know from Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas, when, the, when all these people start getting saved in Antioch, it's Barnabas that they send from Jerusalem. And it's Barnabas, the, the commentary the Holy Spirit gives us through Luke about Barnabas' reaction. And to me, this is, this is I, I don't know, um, maybe a, a model for ministry. Barnabas shows up in Antioch, which was a radically, radically sexually corrupt place. Gnarly worship practices, things you, you, that are illegal in our country. And, and they're getting saved in the droves. And they're starting a church. Remember all the weird ideas you brought to church when you first came? 
what you thought who Jesus was or how you thought Christianity worked or things that were part of your life that you're like, oh, really, I should get rid of that? Now imagine that times like a thousand and crazier things and everybody comes to one place and says, we don't really know anything. We just know that Jesus saves and we're on board with that plan. Probably pretty chaotic. Probably pretty dysfunctional. Just like our church, right? And so... Barnabas shows up, and it says he chastised them all. No. It says that he observed the grace of God among them. He observed that God had favor on each one of them. Barnabas' observation, his lens that he observed the church through, was not being critical or being judgmental or trying to you know, make it his way. It was, dude, you guys are jacked, but God's grace is so mighty here. What God is doing here is so great. And it says he, he, he challenged them or he urged them that with purpose of heart, they should stick to the Lord. And that's, that's just a great message in general. With, you, with purpose, with thought process, with effort, stick to Jesus. That's who Barnabas is. That's his heart. His heart isn't like, I'm going to conform you guys. I'm, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix that. Those things get fixed. With the grace of God. They get fixed through the Holy Spirit. They get fixed through discipleship. But he shows up on the scene and he says, God's doing a great work here. This is amazing. Here's what I have for you. Keep, keep stick, sticking to Jesus. Keep pursuing him. Keep learning about him. Keep following him. Then he leaves. Where does he go? He goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul. Paul the genius Paul the teacher, Paul that literally instructed day by day by Jesus himself for about a year and a half in the desert. He gets Paul, and Paul shows up, and they just teach for, I think it was like a year and a half. I forget how long it is. And they just teach there in Antioch. Barnabas is not a selfish guy. Barnabas is constantly just like, he's a, he's a, he's a reconciler, right? He's saying, no, church, Paul's cool. You can accept him. He's saying, no, church, here, here's Paul. He's going to teach you. He's like a connector. He's helping people connect and helping people to forgive and helping people to look better at other people. And he's gathering them together. That's Barnabas's deal. That's who he is. And I want to make a side note here because Barnabas so often, because of the wording, he gets this bad rap. And people say, well, you know, Barnabas had this argument and then he goes to Cyprus with Mark and he's never heard from again in the book of Acts. Therefore, he's a chump because Paul is who Acts talks about until the last chapter. There's a couple things that are wrong with that. Number one is, after Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, Peter is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. So if we're going to take a, make a doctrine out of omission, in other words, make some true, biblical true, because it does, does not say something, then we have to carry that through. It doesn't say anything more about John. It doesn't say anything more about Peter. It doesn't say any, We don't know anything about Bartholomew, right? We don't know anything about all these people. So if we try to make an omission, the reason why Barnabas is naughty and Paul is the good kid, it's foolishness. Because there's a lot of people that are never mentioned or never mentioned after certain points in the book of Acts. Number two, and this is great. So remember, the Jerusalem Council happens right around 46, 48 A.D., right? When Paul writes to Corinth, and there's different, we, for us it's 1 Corinthians because it's one of two letters that we have that Paul wrote to Corinth. 
But when Paul writes to Corinth the, the, for, in our first Corinthians, that letter is written in 57, 59 AD. So it's about 10 years later-ish. There's, there's, there's discrepancies. There's arguments. So between 7 to 10 years later is when 1 Corinthians is, wrote, is written. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, you can turn there if you like, one of the points that Paul makes 10 years later after this event is he makes the point because he's talking to the Corinthians about how he is an apostle and how these people that are going around teaching you have to be circumcised are not real apostles. And one of the points he makes is he says that Barnabas, he asks a question, he says, are Barnabas and I the only ones who are not allowed to basically make a wage from, from the churches and also have a wife that's paid for by the churches? Not that she's purchased, but that he gets to support through money from the churches. So the point that he's making there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if you want to turn there, is that Barnabas has a full-fledged, church-endorsed, church-paid-for ministry 10 years later. This is really important. Barnabas has been serving the Lord. He's serving the Lord. He's serving the Lord to such an extent that the apostles and the elders of the churches in general in the area still contribute to his ministry and make donations. So this idea that Barnabas like, falls off the face of the earth and becomes the naughty kid is, is false. It's not true. And I, I kind of say that as a side note so we can kind of like lay to rest this, this weird conclusion that so many people come to that, like, that, that Barnabas was wrong and Paul was right and they're both. No, Barnabas was, was serving the Lord. And we can see in who Barnabas is why he made the decision he did, can't we? Mark is his nephew. Barnabas is all about reconciliation and second chances. You see that when he introduces Paul to the church. And so when John Mark leaves the journey but then comes back, he says, Paul, we got to give him another chance. Isn't that something that we would endorse? Isn't that something that, I mean, if you think about it, this is one of the most wild thoughts ever. Not that I would try to push this. this but the first high priest of Israel orchestrates a like 35, well, we don't know exactly, 35,000 people die, but orchestrates like a 2 million person orgy around a golden calf, and a month later is God's high priest. Would you vote for that for your pastor? Probably not, right? But that's what God did with Aaron. Then you have David who kills hundreds. He's always flying off the handle with rage making weird statements like to Abigail's, uh, Abigail's husband, his, his second wife, Abigail. She, he asks for help from her husband. Her husband says no. And, and when the messenger comes and says, hey, he said no. David said, we're going to kill everybody who pees against a wall. Like, seems a little vulgar, David. And when he's saying it, we're going to kill every man in that guy's family. We're going to kill them all because he won't help us. Stays the king. Over and over again, you, you see this forgiveness and this grace. I'm not, I'm not advocating for gross sin or negligence or something like that. I'm saying that God is incredibly gracious and merciful. And this is the heart of Barnabas, reconciliation. So it should not be, it's, not, it's not a bad thing to say, give this guy a second chance. He left. He's back. Let's take him with us. But Paul, he won't do it because he says no. And he'll write in other letters. That above all, the servant of the Lord must be found faithful. 
Isn't faithfulness, isn't that what we all long for in our life? Has, has anybody here ever been betrayed by somebody that they really thought was for them, somebody that was helping them, someone that was integral to them and to their life that they depended on, someone that was a comfort to them, and that person turns and says, no, I'm not going to do this anymore for whatever reason. That's what John Mark did. Something got difficult for him in the work, and he said, I'm not going to walk with you anymore, and he left them. And Paul says, I just can't have that. I need dependable people. If I'm going to be off on this missionary journey in the harsh world where we're going, where people, I mean, if you read Paul's testimony of the Corinthians, where he's talking about in trouble of brethren, in trouble of bandits, in trouble of the ocean, and shipwreck, in trouble, you know, being robbed, and, and all these different things. He says, in that ministry, I cannot have someone who's going to eject on me when things get hard. I just can't. So I will not take Mark. That's a good point too, isn't it? Nothing hurts more than getting betrayed by someone that you trusted, someone that you thought would never leave you, someone that you thought would, would never just throw you to the hounds, as it were, and just leave you destitute. And Paul says, I just can't walk with that guy. I can't do it right now. They have a good plan. Let's go visit the churches. They have a good heart. Paul's heart, man, 1 Corinthians 13, he wrote the chapter on love, right? By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, but he wrote it. He penned it. It was his pen that said, if I have the tongue of angels, if I know all wisdom and all knowledge, because he had ridiculous wisdom and knowledge. It was Paul that said, I have such revelation about who God is and what he's done. God has smitten me with a physical problem, most likely his eyes, because he writes in multiple letters that he has trouble with his eyes. And he says, three times I've asked God to take away this problem. And three times he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, because I know so dang much, God has to keep me humble. And he does it by afflicting me. So maybe if you have a lot of afflictions, you're just a really great person. He says, look, God has to keep me humble with you. So Paul is this radical revelator. But in that revelation, he's the one who wrote, if I know all things, if I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I, can do, if I give my body to be burned, if I give everything do I have to the poor, but I don't love people, I have nothing. He's the one that would write when, in, when he's talking, uh, and he writes in 2 Corinthians, and he's referencing when he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians that we have. And he says, when I handed the letter off, I cried. Because I knew the letter would hurt you. I knew it would cause you sorrow. But I knew that sorrow would bring repentance. This is Paul. He's, he's got a heart for the churches. He, in another place, he says, he says, he's talking about all the difficulties he has there in 2 Corinthians 11 when he's kind of giving his testimony. And he says, above all this, I have the daily anxiety. And the Greek word is anxiety. He says, I have the, great, I have the daily anxiety of all the churches. He says, I care so much about these churches that we've planted, that I've been involved with, that every day I'm anxious for them. I'm praying for them. I care about them. I, I, I care about what's happening to them. So that's Paul. So Paul says, look, I care so much about the church. I will not take this guy with me. He could hurt what God has called me to do for these churches. And that's a very valid point. 
And Barnabas says, man, I cannot not take this guy. This guy needs to have a second chance. This guy needs to be know, he needs to know that God loves him, that God's not giving up on him, that he, is, he can be encouraged. I want to encourage this guy, and I'm going I'm to help him. It's an insurmountable disagreement. And both sides of it have a perfect motive that we know of and a perfect point. There's no wrong here. Does that make sense? Nobody's wrong here. Nobody's wrong about waving flags and screaming the name of Jesus. Nobody's wrong about drums or not drums. Nobody's wrong about ties or not ties. Nobody's wrong about what, you know, if I can go to this church or that church within, you know, Apostles' Creed type stuff. There's no right or wrong in those senses. There's just different opinions. And one of the things that can be so challenging in an insurmountable disagreement is that we take our feelings or our thoughts as doctrine or God's will. And they're just not sometimes. Have you ever felt something that just felt so right and it was wrong? Isn't it Jeremiah who's told us that the heart is deceitfully wicked? Have you ever deceived yourself before? Have you ever talked yourself into something? This would be a good idea. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards you thought, oh, well, that was not such a great plan. That had a lot of fallout that I saw and ignored. And now I get to walk through it. We cannot take the things that we feel are so right and, and try to apply them to other people. You know, we, we do, a couple times we've done discipleship courses in the sense of like how we disciple people. And we try to help people, try to make disciples and so forth. And one of the things, we have a no-fly list. Things that you're not allowed to talk about. In the discipleship groups, healthcare. Not a lot of if you're going to be a disciple at our church, you're not allowed to talk about healthcare. I don't care about essential oils, and I don't care about big pharma because it's not what we're doing here. It's not. We're not allowed to talk about organic food. You know why? Because there's a lot of us that can't afford organic food. You try to disciple someone and you push an organic food on a single mom that can't afford it. You know what she does? She goes home and weeps because you just told her you're poisoning her children and she can't do anything about it. Politics. We don't talk about politics. You know why? Because we don't know squat. We really don't. We have two major networks that are controlled by people on similar boards and have had different, similar owners at the same time, and they feed us information. We're not in back rooms. We're not in the Oval Office. We're not in the GOP. We're not in the, the uh, 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 Democratic Convention. We have no idea. And to measure someone upon their politics or to even speak about it or to interrupt it, you're not helping anybody. We're just not. You know, if you have friends, you talk about politics, God bless you. Vote your conscience. I'm not minimizing politics. I'm just saying that when we're discipling and interacting with people, we have to be so careful what we talk about. Stuff that doesn't matter. They're immeasurable or insurmountable differences. Things we just aren't going to reconcile. And it's totally fine. It's totally fine because that's not what our fellowship is based on. So you can have two people that love Jesus, love God's people, are walking in the calling that God has for them, and they just have to go a different direction. And it's okay because they love Jesus and they love God's people. We don't have to find closure. That's, that's one of the, the, the traps. We try to find closure or comfort when everybody agrees with us. That's what the internet does. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about that, uh, the, uh, uh, the show on Netflix. It was, what was it called? We watched it. The what? 
the social dilemma. We're the creators of Facebook and Instagram, all these higher-ups. They all say that the whole point of all these things are to give you what you want. They even made a point that people, one of the things that they said, and I'm not, okay, I'm just, I'm not making any calls either way, all right? I'm not saying anything about the validity or invalidity of anything. But they even, they point out that people that search certain things, I'll just keep it generic, people that search certain things were the same people that got all the information, remember Pizzagate? You guys remember that? That thing that flew through the internet that there was sex trafficking in pizza places and that all these girls were like being trafficked in underneath these pizza places and it was like this big argument on the internet for a while. Is it conspiracy? Is it not conspiracy? Remember some dude went in and shot up a pizza place and went into the basement to try to find the girls and lo and behold, they weren't there because it was a conspiracy. And so what happened was Facebook, recognizing people that search for certain conspiratorial, again, not measuring, don't care, what was considered conspiratorial material, they got fed more conspiracy. So that being the case, it just, it's just an echo chamber. So we have to be really careful in the stuff that we talk about and the stuff that we interact with because ultimately our goal is to bring people to Jesus. And when we have the disagreements and things like that, it's fine. But we don't, we don't want to constantly be, be, be pushing that stuff. Anyway, I don't want to digress too far. So John Mark in the end, who's he? John Mark in the end, he ends up being basically one of Paul's guys again. He's reconciled. So in the end, Paul, in like in uh, 2 Timothy, so the last letter that Paul writes, he writes to Timothy and he says, please send me Mark. He's very useful to me in the work. So again, here's a guy who would not take him. I will not take you because I can't trust you. And yet he was open to the fact that John Mark, that there was redemption, that, there was, that, that he wasn't forever labeled as that guy who left us. So even in this insurmountable disagreement, because of love and being led by the Holy Spirit, even the person with the disagreement in the end was able to receive the person that wronged him. This is really great. Also, on top of that, what you ended up with, if, you, if we go back and we read it, it says there that uh, um, there was the sharp disagreement. And the word sharp there, so sharp disagreement is one word. And it's used one other time in the Bible. And it's used in Hebrews. And it's used, uh, it really, it just essentially kind of means like a, something that became an, an irritant. It's, used, it's, it's translated in Hebrews, stir up. Stir up one another to love and good works. Stir is the same word that's used here for sharp uh, argument or sharp um, uh, disagreement. So the idea of the word is more along something that is kind of a constant or kind of a uh, stirring up, something that, that brings things to the surface. That's, that's what the word is. So it's not that they, they were fighting or yelling or something like that. We don't want to insert something in the text that's not there. It's, it was a stirring. It was a compelling. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't iron it out. They couldn't get it figured out. They just said, nope, we're not going to do that. 
So anyway, they have this debate, but then it goes on and says this. So Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So then there's this point that's made. Well, why is it that it just says that, that Barnabas sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul, he, he departed, having been commended by the brothers? I don't know. Maybe Barnabas was just like, I can't, I need to, I need to go. I'm not, I want to be careful here because I think something that's very important for us as, as Christians and as human beings is the ability to stay in a conversation. Because right now in our society, we just shut people out. And I think a lot of it's because we do so much via the internet, it's really easy. I type what I want to say. If I don't like what you say, I block you. I type what I want to say. I hit enter. I never go back to see a response. Or unfortunately, I go back every two seconds to see a response. So we do so much now impersonally that we, and with so much no, so much less dialogue, face to face, that it's it's really causing a, a societal breakdown. You've ever noticed that it's a lot easier to text something to someone than it is just to say it to their face. Have you ever done that because it's that? It's cowardice. I love you guys, but texting things to people because you're not willing to say it to their face. It's usually not healthy. We need to be able to have dialogue. If you can't say it to someone's face in love, you shouldn't be texting it to them. You can just chalk that up as an opinion and throw it away. Um, but there's something very special and very loving and very awesome when two people come back together and they disagree and they dialogue in love and in care and to say, I disagree with you, and that deeply hurt me, and this is why. And that person goes back and says, well, you're a moron, I don't care. You can say, okay, cool. I'm fine with that. I wish it wasn't that way, but God bless you, and I'll pray for you, and you can move on. And the crazy thing is when we take steps and kind of godly courage, if we can call it that, when we take steps to do that, what that does, number one, it shows people we really care. Not if you just roll up on them and you're like, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. but to, to actually, you, you cared. You put your best foot forward. Number two, it tempers what you say, doesn't it? Keyboard courage is just a brutal thing. If someone doesn't see me, I can type whatever I want. That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Have you ever said that in person? Probably some of us have. But many of us, we would type, you're the stupidest person I've ever met, but in person we'd be like, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> right? How can you be saved and believe that? That's ridiculous. There's something excellent and wonderful about communicating in person about important things. I'm going to say, I'm like, hey, meet me at whatever. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying like the breakup text, you know, I'm saying the, I'm ending our relationship text. I'm sending the, I, this is what I think of what you said text. I'm sending the, you know, this, as Christians, let's be personal together for as much as we can. Let's be personal. Let's be loving. Let's be interactive. Let's be kind. And let's have real interaction. And I think what we'll find, the more we're willing to, to be personal with one another, to forgive one another, to discuss with one another, what we're going to find isn't 
less fellowship or more scary interactions, I think what we'll find is better interactions, more personal interactions. Fellowship will begin to happen. Things will get worked through. When you can just drop a text on someone and leave, it's a lot less chance that things are going to be worked out than when you show up and you say, I love you and we disagree and let's get this figured out. And for many of us, our stomachs are cramping up right now because we're just like, you're talking about conflict. <sighs> right? I love conflict. I'm all about it. But the, uh, not creating it, but being in it. So, but, the, but there's still a, a reality to just working through things in person. Anyway, so this guy, he's, Mark is called a fellow worker. He gets called, uh, Peter calls him his son. There's this great redemption that happens. And in the end, verse 41, it says, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So what happens is, we don't have a map, but if you, you know, from uh, their departing, one goes basically due west on a boat, or has to hike for a while, and then gets to a boat. Barnabas and Mark do that. And Paul ends up kind of going northeast and around. So instead of having one missionary journey, God truly uses this very okay, very reasonable, but very insurmountable disagreement to have two missionary journeys. And Barnabas is still going and Paul is still going a decade later. And they're still involved with the work. And Paul is acknowledging the validity of Barnabas' ministry. They're not fighting. They're not disregarding. They're not judging. They're not destroying. It's just this awesome thing that happens. And then one day, as it was sung, when we all get to heaven, it'll be reconciled. Every single person, every single Christian that we disagree with or hate will be with us forever in eternity. Think about that. Every person who's received Jesus Christ as Savior Every pastor we've disagreed with, every bad teaching we've railed on, every person we've dismissed or mocked, if we know them, or I should say, if they know Christ, they'll be with us for eternity. There's only one eternal thing on the planet, and it's our souls. There's only one thing that matters ultimately in this entire world, and it's the person sitting next to you, it's the person at Fred Meyer. That's the only thing that will last out of this entire world. It will be rolled up like a garment and burnt. Everything else will perish. So may it be that we value the people more than the issue, that we value the ones that we're interacting with more than being right, that we value one another to talk face-to-face, to talk kindly. In Ephesians, we'll close with this, Ephesians chapter 4. You could also look at uh, James chapter 3 when it talks about uh, wisdom that's from above. Also a really great one. But in Ephesians chapter 4, kind of the abbreviated version, Paul writing says this. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I'll let you turn there. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on. But he, so he's writing from prison, and he says this, 
First, he says, to walk in a, in a manner worthy of which you are called. Now, obviously, we can't do enough to be worthy to what God has called us to, right? We'll never be worthy. It's only in Christ that we have our worthiness. But the idea here is this, to walk, you can even just kind of pronounce it differently, to walk worthy is the idea. In other words, to walk in a manner that shows worth, that you show worth to the calling to which God has called you. Does that make, sure, make sense? To walk in a way where I'm giving value to what God has called me to. Reconciliation, truth, love, right? All these different ideas that are in Christian reality. He says, walk in a way that you give worth to that. Then he goes on to say this, and he labels it for us. Humility. What's the worthy way? Humility. And, and, and literally, uh, gentleness, meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Maybe you've heard that before. The idea of being gentle is the idea of, when it talks about like women, for example, use the word be meek. He's not saying, women, you're weak sauce and you should act like it. What he's saying is, it's restrained power. Meekness is not weakness. It's the idea that you have power and strength in these things, but you restrain it for another reason. In this case, he's saying that, that you could lash out. Maybe you could slay someone with the truth. Maybe you could do whatever, but you don't because you love them. And you care for them. And you have a bigger goal. And your bigger goal is not to be right. Your bigger goal is not to, you know, whatever. It's not to make issue or division. Your bigger goal is to be able to walk with people, even in an insurmountable disagreement. And he says, walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Not just bearing with one another. We do that a lot. I can only speak for me. I can do that. I can bear with people. We all can do that, right? It's just called keeping your mouth shut. But we're to bear with people in love. The great thing about commands like that is all of us who are honest in this room go, I can't do that. I, it, everybody who's honest in this room goes, that's, I just, I'm done. I cannot do what the Bible has asked me to do because it asked me to be patient and to bear with people in love. And that is not a human characteristic. I need the Holy Spirit. I need God. I need to walk humbly and acknowledge that and invite the Spirit into my life and let Him change me and work in me and walk in that supernatural power to bear with someone in love. And then to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't create our own unity. This is important. Our unity is not in this building, our unity is not in a pastor, our unity is not in our style of music, our unity is not in our chair color. Our unity is not in what we dress like, our ages, our music preference. It's not in any of that. That is not what our unity is around. It's the Holy Spirit. Our unity is in that the Holy Spirit has a mission, and it's to build the church and to communicate Christ and who He is. So our unity revolves around that we all have that same purpose. So when people have different ways of accomplishing that purpose, one person says, I'm going to accomplish this, this purpose because I'm not going to take John Mark with me because he's not, he's, not, he's not reliable to me because in my mission to make sure the churches get the absolute best teaching they can get, I cannot have someone that's going to let me down. And our unity also is with a person who says, I cannot not have this man with me. He needs a second chance. God loves this man. We're not going to count anybody out. The unity is based around that God wants to do great things and that he's working. It's not based about all, we all have the same opinions. Because we don't. And we never will. 
So we maintain God's unity by acknowledging what he's doing in this world, how the Holy Spirit works in each one of us as individuals and corporately, and then we allow patience and kindness and love to one another as we're experiencing those things. And all of a sudden, disagreements are just going to be more along the lines of, well, that's cool. (laughs) Bring John Mark with you. I can't go there. And Barnabas would say, well, that's cool. You towed along Silas. I would violate my conscience if I didn't give this guy a second chance. And all of a sudden, these insurmountable differences, they're not causing us anxiety or worry. They're not causing us separation in, in, in a spiritual sense. They're just causing us to say, God bless you. I just can't go there with you. But I hope the absolute best for you, and I will pray for you. And then the crazy thing about that is we're right back to peace because I don't have to make you do what I think you should do. I don't have to live there. I don't have to judge you for things that I think you should do. I don't even have to worry about it. I don't have to sit at my house and go, should I talk to this person? Should I not? Oh, what do I do? I can just go, Lord, if you want me to talk to that person, you should tell me that. And then I will. And peace. It's an amazing thing. We're all busted up. And we're all on a journey to the same place. And so we're just called to love one another, walk with one another, and don't be surprised or dismayed or worried when someone disagrees with you. It's okay. It'll be okay. So we have the communion today. And this might seem like an odd teaching to have communion, except for one thing. Paul calls us. He says, he says look, in the night uh, the Lord was betrayed, he, he passed this thing on. He says he took the cup, and after he had uh, sipped it, uh, he said, you know, take and well, I'm going to butcher it. I'll just read it real quick. Sounds like Kenneth's ministry is going well. You guys can go in there if you want. It might be better. I don't know. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says uh, in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper, supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why have communion after a teaching like this? Well, because our focus is the Lord. That's what it's, when we get together, it's not one another, it's the Lord. And so when we get together, what we do is we have the communion. He says, look, God gave us the bread. Jesus dips the bread, eats the bread. He passes the bread around. And he he says, I'm doing this, and you do it so you can remember my body, my life. That my whole body was given for you, that it was torn apart, that it was nailed to a cross, that he bled out for us. It's not condemnation. It's liberty that he paid with his own body, his own life, for you. This isn't a time to be somber. It's a time to rejoice in what God has done and to eat the bread and think, man, God, you're so good. Thank you for sending Jesus that you did this for me. And then he says, you know what? When you drink the, the wine, we have grape juice. When you drink the wine, he says, do this. He says, do it in remembrance of me because in my blood is the new covenant. So the old covenant was smeared over. It was atoned sin. The idea was sin was covered. 
But blood of bulls and goats could never forgive. It could never erase sin or eradicate its existence or its effect on our lives, our life. But when Christ died, his blood didn't smooth over sin or cover it. It literally removed it from our account. It's not imputed to us anymore. See, we relate to one another and our own selves oftentimes based on sin. I know what you're like. I know what you do. I know what I'm like. And, I, and, we, and that's our lens for how we react and we respond. But when Jesus Christ and when God the Father and when the Holy Spirit are involved in your life, they do not see you for your sin. You are righteous. Does he know that you do bad stuff? Sure. We're not talking about some weird blindness doctrine where God's like, really? Oh, I didn't know that happened. No. But what we're saying is his relation and his care and his love and his, his uh, interaction with you is never based on your sin. As a forgiven person in Christ, you are righteous with God. When he looks at you, he says, this is a righteous person that's going to come into heaven with me forever. And Jesus says, when you partake of this cup, you remember that I, have, I made a new covenant, a new deal with you, and I will fulfill it, and that is that you are righteous through my blood. So oftentimes when we're real about who we are and what God has done for us, it makes it so much easier to be real and honest with who other people are. So considering Jesus helps us to interact with other people. Remembering what he did for us at Calvary and knowing that he did that for the person sitting next to me and the person at SIDS and the person at every place I'm going to visit, and, and, you know, the weird uncle we all have or whatever it might be, he says, that, that person too, that was the new covenant for them too. The cross, it really does level the playing field. So I encourage you, as you take the communion, as you sing the songs, rejoice in the Lord. It goes on to say that it let a man examine himself. And if there's something in your heart and you're reserving judgment about someone, let it go. Let it go. And just remember the Lord this morning. Don't remember the Lord for someone else. Don't apply the sermon to someone else. Remember the Lord for yourself. So we're going to keep it uh, compliant. So uh, our deacon here is going to hand you the elements. You can just come up uh, whenever you'd like. And we have a couple songs. And Sam here, she'll, she'll pass out uh, the element to you if you just put your hand out for it. So God bless you guys. God has great things for us. COVID has nothing on eternal life. Right? Shuts down, shutdowns have nothing on eternal life. Global poverty that may come, it's got nothing on eternal life. If all the bad stuff happens and the economy collapses, you know what? We'll all come here with whatever we have and we'll make some soup and we'll eat it together, laughing that someday we're going to eternity. We'll be uncomfortable. We'll sleep in the cold together with the Lord. There is nothing that this world or Satan can do to us. Nothing. Our life is so much greater, so much greater than than anything that's on this earth. And let's treat each other like that. Father, thank you for the bread and for the cup. And thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for brethren that went before us that had disagreements and loved each other. Thank you for the the calling to walk worthy. Thank you for the reality that you've called us to. Lord, would you please help us to live the life that you've given us? Help us to live in light of eternity and to let the things that need to slide to slide. Help us not to hold people to standards that aren't real. Help us not to measure people, but to love and to to cherish and speak the truth in love as you lead us. Lord, we really want to be helpers of people's joy, and we want to 
We'd love to see a revival in our community and people get saved. But would you please, please bring just good old-fashioned heathens to our church to get saved? Lord, would you please open up miraculous conversations for us to give the gospel and talk to people? Lord, I pray, I pray that you'd squash the COVID thing just so that your kingdom could grow easier. But I like easy, so whatever your plan is, that's what we really want. Uh, but just help us to walk in that. So you're very kind, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.